some of the people uh, I've talked to over the past 20 years. Despite all the vows to his accountability partner, he just felt utterly sick in his stomach, utterly defeated at the guilt that he had watched pornography again. She had gone to the party just to have a bit of fun. He was attractive, and she took the drink he offered, not knowing it was spiked with a drug. When she finally came around, she knew that she'd been raped. She was, she was so angry and full of self-loathing. Why had she gone to the party? Why had she taken that drink? And she stood crying in the shower for over an hour, but inside she just felt used and dirty. He had flown many missions as a bomber pilot in the Second World War. He was getting forgetful in the retirement home, but he was still haunted by the fact that many innocent people must have been killed by the bombs he dropped over Germany. He forgot that he talked to me about it several occasions before, but he never forgot the carnage he must have caused, and he was tormented by his guilt. Now, although our culture thinks talking about sin is a bit of a joke, and certainly doesn't really consider how our, how our wrong actions offend a holy God, many people are still struggling with feelings of guilt and shame haunted by being victims of abuse and violence, haunted by the things that they have done to others. Sin harms us. It disintegrates us. It leaves us feeling broken and damaged goods. What hope is there for broken sinners with guilty consciences? Well, what does God have to say? Well, please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. And you'll find this on page um, 1206. Hebrews chapter 9. And as you look this up, let me just share that in a sense, our society doesn't have categories that really help us to understand why we feel the way we do but the Bible does. And there really is good news on offer today through Jesus Christ for people who experience guilt and shame. But for, to, for us to understand this good news, we need to first understand about the worship practices of God's ancient people in the Hebrew Scriptures. And although this might seem a bit weird and strange if we've never really read the Old Testament, these are really helpful categories that will actually help us today. So I'm going to read this chapter, so please follow along. Hebrews chapter 9. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread, and this was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, 
which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered ark of the covenant. This ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people uh, that they had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. Now this is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They're only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, is not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, so obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the Lord to all the people, he took the blood of the calves together with water, scarlet, wool, and branches of hyssop and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood, both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things 
to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all, at the culmination of the ages, to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many and he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. This is God's word. So please keep it open as we examine this part of God's word this morning. Now these verses divide into two main sections, a description of worship in the Old Covenant in the first ten verses. Uh, it starts with that phrase in verse 1, now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. And then we have a section about worship in the new covenant from verse 11. But when Christ came, and to, to help us grasp things, it often helps to have a visual aid. And God in his kindness uh, wants us to understand the greatness of the salvation he's provided in Jesus Christ. And so he, um, he gives us an incredible visual aid of the worship practices of Israel that we find in the Old Testament in our Bibles. The first covenant prefigured and foreshadowed the reality that would be brought about by Jesus. So let's consider first what worship looked like in the first covenant. Here's a diagram, we've got the next slide. Here's a diagram of how, of how the tabernacle was set up. A and the writer kind of summarizes some of the furniture and where it was placed within the tabernacle in verses two to five. Uh, the tabernacle was a large tent and the priests would enter through a curtain and inside it was divided into two parts, separated by another curtain. The first room was called the holy place. And, and there it, it contained the ornate lampstand, a table on which was placed loaves of bread. And through the second curtain, there was a room called the most holy place. And in there was a big golden covered box called the Ark of the Covenant. Inside the box were, were reminders of God's provision for Israel. There was a, a, a jar of, of manna which had sustained them through the wilderness. The, the, the Aaron's staff that had budded and the Ten Commandments uh, contained in the box. And on top of it was a pure gold uh, covering called the atonement cover or the mercy seat. And sort of molded on this top cover were two of these 
angelic cherubim with their wings outstretched, covering over the atonement cover, symbolizing the presence of God. Here's the place where God especially was present. And that's why these cherubim are called the cherubim of the glory. So there's the layout. And the writer stops in verse 5 and he says, well, you know, we don't have time to discuss these things, which I find quite fascinating because actually I, I, I'd love for him to discuss a bit more about these details. But he says, no, we don't have time for this. Now, why is that? Because now the main focus is, is not on the old covenant, but the new covenant that Jesus brought about that supersedes the old Now, one of my pet peeves is when people call this room a sanctuary. It's not a sanctuary. There's only one sanctuary. It's a heavenly sanctuary. There's only one building we're interested in, and it's the one where Christ is in the heavens. This is just a rain shelter, right? This is not a mystical, magical, ooh, place. It's just a room with most of the rain's kept off our heads. It's great. Yeah, and it's a terrible mistake when some Christian denominations have tried to copy the worship practices of the Old Testament. And so they call it a sanctuary, and they have a, a table, and they call it the altar, and they have priests. And, and it's all this Old Testament stuff which has been actually superseded. And now it's the reality of what we have in Jesus Christ. Now in the book of, the, of, of um, Exodus and Leviticus, you you can read about the worship ceremonies that took place in this space in the tabernacle. And the the writer of the Hebrews summarizes these worship functions in verses 6 to 10. This earthly sanctuary symbolized the presence of a holy God who wanted to live amongst his people. And it teaches us much about the holiness of God and also about the, the great problem of evil and sin. See, throughout life, when people are aware that they had sinned, the way to stay in relationship with God in this old covenant was that they'd have to bring animal sacrifices. And they would lay their hand on the animal, and they would kill the animal. And they'd have to harvest some of the organs, because it would be put on the, on the bronze altar and burnt. And and every time they did that, it reminded them that sin is very serious. Now, we need to get this because actually we live in a culture that doesn't think sin is a problem at all. Sin is very serious. Our sin before a holy God deserves death. Our sin is gross. Like killing an animal and harvesting its organs and getting your hands in there. But every time they sacrifice, it reminds them their sin was serious. But God, in his kindness, said, I'm going to make a provision. Instead of you dying for your sins, they identify with the animal by putting their hands on it. And in a sense, the animal is a substitute dying in their place. And its blood would be applied uh, to the altar. And on a daily basis, these sacrifices of sin would, for sin would be going on all the time in the, in the courtyard area on the altar there. And the priests would daily have things to do with it as they would enter into the tabernacle tent itself, into the holy place, to carry out aspects of their worship ministry. 
But only the high priest would get into the most holy place only once a year, the Day of Atonement. And Rachel read a bit of it to us today. And it's as if, you know, the daily bringing of these animals, the daily confessing of sin, of sinners coming into the courtyard, pollutes the whole tabernacle. And the Day of Atonement is the day where the whole thing needs to be purified and cleansed because sin is gross and God hates it and it needs to be taken away. And it's an incredible day. The high priest first has to sacrifice a bull for his own sins because the problem is he's a sinner. He has to deal with his problem. And then he sacrificed a goat for the sins of the people. And he would enter into the most holy place and blood would be sprinkled on the atonement cover and before the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, it's a picture that actually our, our sins need to be cleansed. It disrupts our fellowship with God. Provision needs to be made. Justice must be satisfied. And, and our sins must be carried away. And this was symbolized by this incredible second event where another goat, uh, the, the, the high priest would lay his hands on, the, on this other goat. Uh, they would confess the sins of the people. And then this goat would be carried out into the wilderness. And, and get lost there. And it was a beautiful picture to Israel that their sins were being carried away. It was being dealt with. Now the writer of the Hebrews in verse 8 points out that the Holy Spirit is teaching some very important things through all of this. The first thing he wants to hit home is this. Access to God is limited was limited back then. Look at chapter 9, verse 8. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. The people could see the tabernacle at the center of their camp. They, they camped as nations around the tent. It was at the center of their camp, so they saw that God was amongst them. And yet there was very limited access to come close to God. Only the high priest, once a year, drew near to God. And only then with animal sacrifices, with blood. And, and this teaches us something very important. You cannot come to God any way you want. God can only be approached on his terms. Again, our culture does not get this at all. If people think that there is a God there at all, they just assume that they can relate to God any way they want. They can come to God any way they want just as they are. And they create a God of their own imaginations. And the God that they imagine is someone who um, they think they can worship and relate to just in their own terms. Oh yeah, me and God, we're just, you know, we're pals. I can just, whatever. Werner uh, Herzog put on uh, a fascinating documentary back in 2005 called Grizzly Man. Uh, I think it's well worth watching. And it's about a bear enthusiast called Timothy Treadwell, a man who loved to get close uh, to wild grizzly bears in Alaska. He, he camped in these bear reserves in Alaska because he believed he could live amongst them unharmed because in his own imagination, he had a special connection with the bears, a special relationship with the bears. And the documentary ends with a sound recording of the bears basically attacking him and his girlfriend, mauling them and killing them. 
My friends, it is unwise to treat any person or any animal by your own made-up view and your own imagination, let alone relating to God that way. God is holy. We are sinful. And there's no safe way to relate to God apart from the way that He has made possible. And the restrictions of access in these regulations of the tabernacle teach us that. But the Holy Spirit was teaching something else through this whole system. He was teaching us that that the whole system that had been portrayed there was totally inadequate to really meet the needs of sinners and that we needed something greater. The fact that the sacrifices kept needing to be repeated day after day, the, the, the day of atonement year after year, meant that our sin problem was not really dealt with by this system. This this whole teaching which God gave shows us the problem of our sin, but it doesn't provide the solution. At best, they functioned as an external way of dealing with the sin problem. As verse 9 says, they were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. Literally, the phrase is, couldn't perfect the conscience. This internal issue of a sinful heart and a guilty conscience was actually left untouched by these animal sacrifices and the application of this blood. These are just external regulations. And they look forward to a better covenant that will deal with the fundamental issue. And so with that framework of these visual uh, rituals, Let's consider what an amazing salvation Jesus has achieved for us in the worship of the new covenant in verses 11 to 28. You see, in every way that the old system was inadequate, we see that what Jesus achieved in his death, his resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of God itself, he totally smashed it. Jesus has, in every way, provided the salvation that we as sinners need. And there's three aspects of the saving ministry of Jesus Christ I want to draw out this morning that shows how it secures our salvation and enables us to have a genuine relationship with a holy God. Firstly, consider his saving ministry in the past, in verses 11 to 14. Look at verse 11. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went to the greater and more perfect tabernacle that's not made with human hands. That is to say, it's not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, so obtaining eternal redemption. I'm glad we sang the hymn, The Power of the Cross, because it kind of recounts the events of what actually happened in in those final stages of Jesus' life as he died upon a cross. In Mark's Gospel, one of the eyewitness accounts, uh, he records that Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen when he went to Jerusalem. On on at least three occasions, he said to his disciples what was going to happen. You know, he knew that when he went there that uh, he would be... um, delivered by the chief priests 
uh, and condemned to death and that he, they would hand him over to the, uh, the Romans and they would mock him, spit on him, beat him and kill him. And three days later, he would rise. That's what he taught. And so as he headed purposefully to the cross, after much suffering, having been crucified on this wooden cross, Mark records how his final breath was a loud cry. And the curtain of the temple which in a sense was the, the temple was based on the tabernacle. The, the curtain that separated the most holy place from the holy place was torn from top to bottom at the last loud cry of agony, but victory from the cross of Christ. His willing sacrifice has made it possible for sinners to come into the direct presence of God. For all who rely on Jesus, the way now is open to the most intimate possible relationship with the Holy God. And the writer of the Hebrews points out the significance of the, of the resurrection and ascension into heaven, into the immediate presence of, of God the Father. Jesus is both the, the perfect sacrifice and the high priest all in one. He presents not the blood of animals, but he comes on the basis of the blood of his own sacrifice. And it's offered not in some earthly tabernacle, but it, but it was in heaven itself. So the old covenant and its tabernacle and sacrifices are a pale shadow reflecting the reality of Jesus' accomplishment. A superior sacrifice applied in the presence of a superior sanctuary has achieved an eternal redemption. Eternal redemption. My sin and wrongdoing, your sin, your wrongdoing, has defiled God's world. It's offended a holy God. And we deserve death. Not just physical death, but eternal separation from God. We deserve to pay the price of this penalty for breaking God's law. And, and this is how amazing our God is. Although he's the one that we've offended, he, in his amazing grace, has provided a way that we can be made right with him. That we can have atonement, we can be made at one with God by sending his one and only son into the world who offered himself willingly in the place of sinners. And so for those who trust and rely on the death of Jesus as payment for their sins, they are redeemed from slavery to sin. Redeemed from the just punishment they deserve as sinners and they're brought into a place of total forgiveness including the cleansing of our conscience. Here is a beautiful thing for those who come this morning weighed down with a sense of the guilt and the shame of your sin. He washes us clean on the inside. He makes us brand new people with new cleansed hearts. He can perfect our conscience so that we no longer need to feel guilt or shame. 
Look at verse 13. The blood of goats and bulls and ashes of a heifer sprinkle on those ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they're outwardly clean. That was the old covenant. Verse 14. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. I don't know whether you've had the experience of um, damaging a relationship with someone close to you. You've snubbed them in some way. You've said something that's hurt them maybe. Or maybe you've done something sneaky that benefited you and, they, and it meant that they missed out on something. How, how do you feel when you've got a nagging conscience? There's a great awkwardness about relating to them. You struggle to even look them in the eyes because you feel so guilt-ridden. See, our sin leaves us feeling condemned, unclean, and dirty before God, before others. And here's the great news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He can secure our freedom and our pardon so that we are made spotlessly clean. For all who trust him, he can wash away all our guilty stains so that with joyful freedom we can serve the living God. There's no embarrassment about boldly approaching God's very throne because he washes us completely clean. There's no threat of the law hanging over us. There's nothing doubtful or uncertain about our access into the presence of God. Through Jesus Christ, the fear that we might have of facing a holy God as a judge is replaced with the knowledge that through repentance, we meet a loving Father who actually runs to greet us and throws his arm around us and says, let's, let's have a party. Rejoice with me. For this one was lost, but now is found. Now that's good news for the person who's gone back and filled their mind with the pollution of pornography. That's great news for the woman who just feels defiled, for the bomber pilot with regrets. Eternal redemption has been accomplished by Christ. He, his blood can cleanse our conscience. He frees us to serve the living God. All made possible if we come in repentance, relying on the completed crosswork of Jesus Christ. So consider what he's done for us in the past, but consider too his saving work in the present. Verses 15 to 26. Look at verse 15. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. And look at verse 24. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. Just some quick points. 
See, verses 16 to 22 reminds us some basics as it relates to wills and the importance of blood in the Old Covenant. And the thing about wills, we all know about it, is you only benefit from it when someone dies. And verses, verse 22 summarizes from the Old Covenant that there is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. Just punishment must be, just be made. Justice must be satisfied. And here's the point. The death of Jesus Christ, where his blood was shed, secures our eternal inheritance. The death of Jesus is the means by which all our sins are forgiven. His death is the basis of a new covenant, a new relationship with the living God. On the night before his crucifixion, Jesus took the cup and handed it around his disciples saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And next time we come to communion, as you drink the cup, remember this. Jesus is the mediator that secures our eternal inheritance. That cry on the cross, it is finished, means the work is complete. The new covenant is, is done, achieved, it's guaranteed. We are guaranteed the new creation. This eternal redemption uh, redeems everything. He's going to redeem these aging, flabby old bodies that are full of disease and death. We're going to get redeemed brand new bodies fit for a redeemed brand new creation. Christ makes everything new. His blood, his sacrifice guarantees a brand new heavens and a new earth. This life is not all that there is. And we have absolute confidence that this is ours because right now Jesus stands at God's right hand or sits at God's right hand for us. He is the mediator of the new covenant. His very presence in, at God's right hand right now secures this eternal inheritance for us. So that's how he's saving us in the present. Consider his saving work in the future. The last two verses of chapter 9. Verse 27, just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many and he will appear a second time. Not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Here's the Christian hope. The future is not going to end in despair and darkness, but the appearance or a second time of Jesus Christ. And when he comes, he brings this salvation to completion for all who are waiting for him, who are living with his expectant faith, ready for his return. And my question for you today is, is that you? Do you know that God has called you? Are you waiting expectantly for the return of Christ? Knowing that because you've put your trust in him, his work in the past has redeemed you eternally. Knowing that his work as a mediator of the new covenant in the present secures this inheritance eternally. And that he is coming back to bring that salvation to us. My friends, Jesus Christ has absolutely smashed it. He's covered it all. It's all done. It's all achieved. What 
an amazing Savior. Are you trusting him today? There's no other way to approach this God. Any other way is just in your imaginations and incredibly foolish. It is only through Jesus Christ and his shed blood that you can be right today. But you can be right today. And if you've not done it, why don't you come and put your trust in him today? There'll be people at the front happy to pray with you. I'll be standing at the back for a bit. Come and speak to me if you want to know more. My friends, let us rejoice at such a great salvation because of such a great Savior. We're going to stand and sing a couple of songs.